You're listening to the Real Estate Runway Podcast, powered by Quattro Capital, where we are all about alternative business and investment strategies to help you amplify life and maximize wealth. Here's your host, the recovering engineer turned multifamily investor, Chad Sutton. All right, Real Estate Runway family, today we're welcoming back a special guest from episode 19, way back in the archives, a member of my team, Miss Amy Silvis of Silvis Capital. She is an alliance partner of Quattro Capital, a brilliant market research mind, a brilliant underwriter, a brilliant deal maker. I've done a lot of deals with her. And her and I were on the phone on Friday just talking about where we have been, where we see things going. And we're like, this should be a podcast. So get ready. We're going to get into this episode and you're going to hear basically Chad and Amy get on a soapbox and just talk what we know about currency, economy, where we've been, where we're going why the cause and effect relationships have behaved that way. I'm super excited for this episode, so let's get right into it. Here we go. All right, all right, all right. Welcome, Real Estate Runway family, to another episode of the Real Estate Runway podcast. I'm your host, Chad Sutton. Before we get started, folks, if you get any value out of this show, please scroll down and leave us a five-star review and maybe a thoughtful comment. Those ratings and comments are worth their weight in gold and are the only way to increase the reach of the show. You can also follow us via our parent company on Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn at Team Quattro Capital. One word, no special characters, or simply by visiting us at thequattroway.com. We really appreciate all of our listeners out there, and we'd love to hear from you. If you have any content requests, feedback, just want to say hello, drop us a note at podcast at thequattroway.com. And if you'd like to apply to be on the show, please visit us at thequattroway.com slash podcast. And now on to your scheduled production. We are joined today with a repeat guest, member of the Quattro Capital team, Miss Amy Silvis. If you want to go back and listen to her previous episode, go back all the way to the OG back in the day, episode 19. What are we on now? 76 or something? As of this listen, it's probably broken 100. Episode 19, Making Life Better Through Multifamily Real Estate with Amy Silvis. She's a good friend of mine. Her story is incredible. But what she will never tell you until you get her on a podcast and, and ranting is she is a fellow Federal Reserve and Economy Nerd. So, Amy, welcome back to the show. How are you? What have you been up to, my friend? Chad, this is so cool. Thank you so much for inviting me back on. I know just a few days ago, we were just ranting to each other on the phone about current events, and we thought, wait a minute, let's pause. We've got to record this and, you know, allow other people to to listen to us and our brains go on this great topic. So it's such a pleasure to be back. I know since the last time we recorded, you and I have done a whole bunch of multifamily deals together. It's that hashtag grabbing assets, right? As we continue to build our portfolio and our wealth and of course, serve our residents and our investors. So it's been an incredible ride. It has been, Amy. And you know, I, I missed on that. I was wearing that shirt yesterday that says hashtag grabbing assets across the front. So I sh should have worn that today for you because you would have called me out on it. But yeah, no, as, as Amy as Amy mentioned, we have done a number of deals together, you know, and seen a lot over these last couple of years. And really what I'd love to do, Amy, I'll let you, maybe I'll let you kick it off. You know, we, we're currently, you know, as of this, not this writing, this recording, it is October 7th, 2022. We are now, what, 10 months into interest rate hikes and, you know, further deviation of buyer and seller sentiment on really any commercial real estate asset, you know, as yeah. yesterday's pricing is no longer financeable under those cash flow streams. Let's just kind of take it back a minute and let's think about, how did we get here, right? This is to some people, this came as an, as a surprise, an accident. But let's start the conversation there is what has been building to this point in pre-2022 to kind of set the stage for the actions the Fed has had to take, in your opinion? 
Yes, I love this, Chad. And I think, you know, to your point, you and I both love, love to study monetary and economic history, right? Because it allows us to see patterns and maybe project into the future. So I think it is important for us to talk about what has happened. And as we all remember, you know, starting in March of 2020, there was a pandemic. And as our dear friend and your aunt Kim says, we intentionally shut down the United States and big parts of the global economy to save lives and for health. But the Federal Reserve, in order to support, you know, the intentional shutdown of the global economy, increased the United States currency supply by close to 30 percent. So, so such a massive increase, something we had never seen in the dollar's history. And as you can probably guess, there have been a bit of things that have come forth from that action that was, I would argue, necessary over 2020 and 2021. But we're dealing with those consequences now. And let's talk about that for a minute. So first of all, you mentioned we shut the world down in March of 2020. That seems very, like we all just accept that now because we lived through it. But let's be real. That's like the first time that's happened in the in the world since Noah's Ark or something like that. Right. I mean, I don't know how yep. far back you have to go to find that again. That was a yeah. monumental problem, right? And right. so why, in your opinion, was printing money, I mean, we're not here to argue whether it was necessary or not, but what, what was the effect of printing money, right, in the economic machine? Yes. I mean, you know, to your point, shutting down the economy could have blasted us back to the dark ages and a depression that none of us could ever imagine. So being able to continue to have money flow through the system and have the system not collapse economically is not hyper. It truly kept lending going, which is obviously in our world very important, but allowing all business to continue. So we were able to feed, house, I mean, everything, every basic economic activity that's necessary to maintain civilization. So these are big words and big statements, but truly it was something that needed to happen. But as with all things, you know, there are consequences. So we're living through that right now. And let's let's talk about those consequences now. So, you know, let's let's fast forward a little bit in the story. You know, all of a sudden you start to hear a lot of, earlier, a lot of the naysayers or, you know, doomsdayers as they were termed, inflation is coming, inflation is coming. It's like Paul Revere, but inflation is coming, you know? And then here we are and inflation came, right? wasn't really a surprise to us because, as you mentioned, for the first time in our modern lives, we increased the money supply by, you know, nearly half of what, what it was before. And so talk a little bit about the supply and demand of currency, because I think people have a hard time wrapping their head around fiat currency versus real. And we won't, we, we, we won't go into that here, but, you know, why does supply and demand matter for the dollar? Right. When I think, Chad, it goes to the definition of inflation, right? I think a lot of people think that inflation or maybe would argue inflation is the rising of prices. But I would argue the true definition of inflation is simply an increase in the number of currency units in circulation. Rising prices is simply a symptom of this occurring. So to your point, if we're increasing the currency supply by 30%, you know, yes, we're not going to be surprised that prices increase maybe a similar amount. And as you said, maybe not everyone kind of thinks through it that way, but just imagine more dollars chasing the same amount of goods and services. You know, if all of a sudden, you know, you and I have a dollar, but if all of a sudden we both have two dollars, well, we're able to pay a bit more just by nature how much money we have, pay a bit more maybe for the same amount of fixed goods. We won't mention the supply chain issues and all of that, but, you know, there were a de decrease in amount of things to buy as well during that time. Well, and that's a very important point to make is, remember, we shut down the economy, which means we shut down production of virtually everything in the world for a little while. So yeah. we've seen people talk about lumber prices going up. We've seen people talk about transportation prices going up. 
I mean, really anything that someone had to spend time to create or provide a service, price went up because all of a sudden there was scarcity there. Oh, by the way, we all have more money in our pockets. And so if I wanted, I'm going to use a terrible analogy, but if I wanted a Big Mac from McDonald's and all of a sudden there were half as many Big Macs in the world because McDonald's stopped making Big Macs for an entire year, right? But demand was still there. Well, naturally, they can say, hey, I'm going to charge a little more for this because demand is there. Well, and you can't really just say shame on big business because they raised their prices. We paid it, right? Price is made because we we agreed to pay it. If nobody paid the price, the price would have went back down. But so there's two sides of the equation. But point is now you have, instead of $1, you have $2 in your pocket. So maybe you're willing to pay a buck 25 instead of a buck for a Big Mac because you're hungry, you know? So like this yeah. is this is the nature of how we kind of got hit from two sides here with not only the supply of money increase, the supply chain of virtually everything decreased, you know? And so we have supply and demand of the goods and, you know, increase in supply of the dollar. So the net effect of that is inflation. Anything to add to that? Yeah. You know, I, I think the one thing I would add, and maybe this is a little bit of a tangent, but I think it's worth mentioning, you know, this increase in sec- currency supply, anytime a central bank does this, that increase in dollars or whatever the currency unit is, isn't distributed equally. It's typically right. distributed to those that are mo- the most connected and the most powerful in society, which ends up meaning the rich get richer and those on fixed income and those with less income tend to not get access to those dollars as soon, but their prices still rise. So it is a regressive tax when currency is created. And unfortunately, that hits the most vulnerable in society. So I think that's important to mention because I think uh, some people rightfully so, get upset about what we see happening to to some of our, our fellow humans in the U.S. You know, and I, I love that you fielded that question so well, because I, I just committed one of the seven deadly sins of a podcast host saying, do you have anything to add to that? So I'm glad you fielded <laughs> that question. I'm not supposed to do that as a host. Shame on me. Shame on me. But, you know, bringing it back to real estate a little bit. So we, we've kind of talked about the why behind things and, and the, the mm-hmm. cause and effect relationships in the macroeconomic economy. But when we start to think about Okay, what does that mean to real estate? Well, what's the number one thing we use in real estate to multiply our wealth? The answer is leverage. Now, there's irresponsible use and responsible use. We're not going to get into that, right? But the point is, most of us use some form of leverage or debt to buy these properties. Now, let's talk about why we saw prices in real estate skyrocket like 20%, you know, after the pandemic. Well, part of it is, you know, we, we had a, reduction in supply of deals because things just didn't sell. It was uncertain times. So sure, some money was on the sidelines, but people still wanted the asset. Well, then we come out of this all of a sudden, and as you mentioned, mostly people who have control of wealth have more money and we're still now going after the same assets that are reduced in in a supply. And guess what? Money was still basically free. You could basically still go get a loan for two or three percent at, you know, 70 to 75, 80 percent of, of purchase price or cost. And in my mind, that that has just basically created a perfect storm for I can pay whatever I feel like because, A, I have more money that was given to me. And B, you know, I have effectively free money because if you're borrowing at rates below inflation, which we know that even before it was reported has been greater than 3%, you know, it's basically free money. I mean, what what are your thoughts on that whole situation? It's mind-blowing. And I think, again, it goes back to you and I studying monetary history. And one of my reasons for getting into this space, because 
you in a time when inflation is high and inflation is inevitable in the type of monetary system we have. That's another conversation. But those who are borrowers are winners. To your point, you know, you and I, I think what the last deal we closed, what was our interest rate? Maybe four and a quarter, maybe even less. And inflation Worst case. Was, Worst yes. case at the time. Yeah. That, yes, like, yes. I think it was three and a half when we closed. Okay. Memory. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was even better. And inflation, you know, as stated by the government was 8%. So what our real rate was, yeah, was negative, which is amazing. So um, let's do that math. Yeah. Negative four and a half percent, right? I mean, that's what yes. we were paying effectively. Yeah. So we're being paid to borrow money. We're paying the loan down with decreased in value dollars. So that inflation induced debt destruction, that, that term that you and I love to talk about, we can dive into that as well, you know, with cash flowing asset in areas where people were migrating and their jobs were great. So we're able to raise rents on them. Yeah. Quite, quite an amazing scenario. Now things have changed a little bit, but I'm proud of us for really taking advantage of what we were able to do and what was offered to us at the time. So let, let's take it into kind of, so we, we've gotten to where we are now. Let's talk about the now for a minute. And then I want to talk about where we see this going, because this is kind of yeah. where it gets fun, right? Yeah. But the now, in my opinion, let's talk a little bit about assets versus productive assets. And when I say productive assets, I'm talking about things that, you know, like a, like a, an apartment building. I buy the asset. People actively pay me for a service, which is providing housing, and it is therefore producing some form of cash flow. And the, the reason I bring this up, Amy, is you have a lot of people who got a hold of this money. Some put it in the stock market, which is a speculative asset, you know, and, and some put it elsewhere. So that's fine. But when you're buying productive assets, where people can pay you in whatever form of currency that even if the dollar goes away tomorrow and they need to pay it in silver or carrots or green beans, like whatever we decide is the new currency for rent, you know, it's still a productive asset. And therefore, my mindset, and I'd, I'd love to hear your take on this as well, is that we should be going into debt hand over fist right now for productive assets. Now, I caveat that with responsibly. I mean, of course, if you go into too high of debt, you will lose the asset. That is a different yep. situation. But as long as you're doing it responsibly, going into debt hand over fist because of this term, inflation-induced debt destruction. So let's talk about that a little bit and maybe come at it from, what does that mean? You know, inflation-induced debt destruction. Yeah. So I love that you said that, Chad. And, and I agree, yeah, about getting as much debt as we can on assets. And I love the definition that Robert Kiyosaki uses for an asset. An asset is simply something that puts cash in your pocket every month. A very simple definition. So that is not capital gains, by the way, right? That's that's cash flow. So inflation-induced debt destruction, a term that I love, I didn't invent, so I can't take credit for that there. But essentially, let's all think back 10 years ago and what maybe $100 purchased you. What, what did it buy? And what does $100 buy for you today? Well, you get a lot less for your money with that $100 today, right? So that is a reduction in the purchasing power of that dollar. So now let's think about if we're borrowing something today, let's just say a million dollars, we're borrowing that today and use that as same analogy, 10 years from now, how much is that million dollars worth? It's probably going to be worth significantly less. So you're paying back, paying down your debt month after month with dollars that are devalued. So essentially, you as the borrower are on the winning side and the lender is on the losing side. And this is a huge benefit as an investor above and beyond the cash flow, above and beyond, you know, all the other things, appreciation that, that we can get. Winners are debt borrowers in situations like this. 
Chad, is that, am I going where you want to go? No, you really are. And and I think, you know, taking it a step further, let me, let me go the other direction. Let's say yeah. you borrowed $100,000 to buy a medium-sized apartment community in 1925, okay? Let's, all right, and let, let's say, okay, well, if you go and Google, you can Google this. What is $100,000 worth in today's dollars? It's going to be a lot less. So if all you did, let's just say you had an interest-only loan the whole time, right? And oh, by the way, cost of living continued to increase, rents continued to rise, wages continued to rise, which means you can charge more rent on that building. Well, guess what? You're going to look up in 2022, you know, a hundred years later and it's worth what? At least a million, you know, probably at least 10X, you know, Google the numbers and fact check me on this, but that is inflation induced debt destruction because what was effectively probably felt like a, a million dollar loan to you at the time is now worth a 10th of that. And so Let's take it to a hyperinflation scenario. We have not experienced hyperinflation, folks. That This has been inflation and stagflation, arguably, depending. But let's say we got into a hyperinflation scenario, right? To where, okay, all of a sudden, like it started costing $20,000 to buy a carrot or something crazy, right? So like it's mind boggling. But think about that. Think about where you took, let's say you took a $20,000 loan for a car. Don't do that. But say you did, right? That's not a productive asset, by the way. I'm not sanctioning that purchase. But if you took a $20,000 loan for a car or so whatever you could buy with that money, and all of a sudden hyperinflation took place, and that $20,000 will only buy you a carrot. Well, guess what? You can take that carrot, and now you own your car outright when you go pay off your lender. That is inflation-induced debt destruction at its finest, folks. Spot on, Chad. And I think that is so far outside of anything we've thankfully ever had to experience in the United States as Americans. But it's a very real scenario throughout the world, you know, whether you're talking about Zimbabwe, Venezuela, even what's going on in Turkey right now. Yeah, this is a very feasible scenario that could happen. But even at a smaller scale of what we're experiencing in the U.S. right now with whether you want to call it 8% is the CPI or, you know, 15%, whatever, you know, pick your number. The principle still remains and it's still a really powerful wealth generating tool that I think is invisible to a lot of people. So I love that we're talking about yet another benefit of owning commercial real estate. Yeah, and let's let's put that equation together, Amy, right? Because let's let's just for round numbers cuz nobody can agree on the freaking number. It's 10%. Let's say CPI is yeah. 10%, okay? Yep. Well, yeah, rates are not 2 and 3% anymore. We're not at Disneyland anymore, the happiest place on earth for for interest rates. But let's say that now your rate is 7%. Just give me some credit. 7% Okay, you're still making 3% on that money as opposed to you using your own money in place of that debt. So not all, and, and then let's couple that with you buy a building. Let's, let's say returns are lower now because we're worried that rents are going to drop. I'm, I'm giving you all the credit, audience. Okay. Yeah. So let's, let's say that returns on a building are only 10% per year, right? And when, when all is said and done, you've now made 3% on your debt per year and you've made 10% on the property per year. So you, like you're growing wealth on both sides of the coin by using debt. So uh, anyway, is that making sense or did I kind of go on a tangent there, Amy? I think it's fantastic. It makes a lot of sense to me. And it's so important to utilize these these concrete numbers so people can visualize because gosh knows Wall Street isn't teaching us about this and neither is the education no. system, right? So let's spread the good word, Chad. Yeah. And I'm going to I'm gonna do one thing here and you, you can slap me for this later. You might agree. I, I am not a doomsdayer, folks. I promise you, I'm not one who's hoarding gold and silver. I do have gold and silver, but I'm not a hoarder of gold and silver. Fact, fact checked us on this. The dollar has depreciated since its inception over 95%. If you go look at what a dollar would buy you when it first came out versus what it will buy you today, 
and is depreciated over 95%. That means you can literally buy like 5%. I'm, I'm doing the math easy for you. You can buy 5% of what your dollar bought you back in the day. And so if you think about that, and now now let's take things back, and I'm going to quote Ray Dalio here, right, with his Economic Principles book and Changing World Order, brilliant owner and operator of Bridgewater Associates, yeah. brilliant economic mind, but he has spent a lot of time and effort studying other cultures and other monetary systems and just, you know, just understanding the cause and effect relationships behind why economies grow and die. No currency in the history of the world, zero has survived 97% inflation, okay, or 97% devaluation. We are at 95 and change, and consumer price index is somewhere between 6 and 15, depending who you ask. So I'm just going to leave that there for you and, you know, and, and just, just know that this is a real thing and that, you know, in our lifetime, we may very well see a new currency as well as us cease to be the, the world reserve currency. Hope I'm wrong, but I'm going to, I'm going to break my rule again. Anything to add to that? It's okay if you say no. <laughs> no, you know, Chad, I think it's important for us to remain grounded without doomsday. I really like that you said that because, you know, we need to understand the reality. We need to understand the history of what may be coming down the road. Because there is so much in our control when we do have that information. This is not a doomsday scenario. This is something where we can empower ourselves with knowledge and action. You know, you and I are both doing that. If you and I can do it, other people can as well. Sure. Through really understanding what their options are. So I don't see it as doomsday at all. I see it as incredibly empowering. And shame on us for retaining this information just to ourselves and not helping to spread it for, so others can benefit as well. So we're all better if we're more prepared for what may be coming down the road. And before we go into the future of where we think things are going, tell me your favorite saying one more time about what is history, it, it rhymes or something like that? Yeah, so yeah, there is, well, okay, so two of them. So yeah, so history doesn't repeat, <laughs> it often rhymes. But I think Winston Churchill said, the further into the past you look, the further into the future you can see. That I think is incredibly powerful. Yes. And I also believe he said, give me a control of a nature of a country's money supply and I care not who makes its laws or something like that. So there's a lot of fun things. Did he say that or did I get that wrong? I don't think so. I think that may have been Keynes or maybe look, someone more sinister. I don't remember. Look, look at me. I'm getting, I'm getting like, you know, fact checked live here. It's cool. So <laughs> I'm not upset, but let's, <laughs> all right. So let, let's take that. Thank you for that, by the way. Those are, those are wonderful sayings and, and they're, they're right. I mean, history doesn't, repeat itself verbatim, but it definitely rhymes. And if you study histories of cultures of money and everything like that, you're going to see that. So, okay, let's pivot this direction, Amy. This is, we've been to what got us here, the cause and effect relationships. We've talked about what's going on now. Let's look into the future a little bit. So, you know, most people listening to this show, as you know, are commercial real estate investors or, you know, operators, investors of sorts, lenders. You know, we yeah. have had access to a lot of data, a lot of public figures, and just a lot of points of view on where is the economy going, where are interest rates going, more importantly, and what does that mean for our world of investing, commercial real estate? So I'm gonna I'm gonna let you lead off here and I'll, you know, of course have my opinions as we go. <laughs> <laughs> we're in such a fascinating time, Chad. I love that we're talking about this because I think I sent you a message or, or to our whole team on Slack that the you know, the UN asked the United States to stop raising interest rates because it's having that much of a detrimental impact on the economy. And I really think, 
you know, the Fed is stuck in between a rock and a hard place because I think people understand that their currency creation, even though, I mean, let's just say, let's give them the benefit of the doubt, it was well intended. But inflation numbers, the way that we've seen them are awful and they really impact people and they have to take action. But we also know, and I think the Fed secretly does as well, that every time they raise rates, especially at a clip like this, the economy does pretty poorly. So, you know, what are they going to do? Are they going to have raging inflation or are they going to crash the economy? I say crash a little hyperbolically, but induce, you know, a bit of a recession. So, you know, I really firmly believe that we are probably going to see rate cuts sooner rather than later. Chad, I think you actually had a great statistic about the time when the Fed starts hiking on average, how soon they start they start cutting. So I'm going to toss it over to you to, to elaborate if you'd like. Yeah. And, and I do want the listeners, by the way, to go fact check me on this because this is very easy. Go to Fred.com, F-R-E-D, and simply create a plot of the the Fed funds rate and, and it will automatically overlay recessions for you, the little shaded areas. This is a great thing to look at. What you will see is in the history of the Federal Reserve within an average of two years and a max of three years from the first rate hike comes the first rate cut. And why yeah. is that, right? And by the way, 2008 was the three-year the, the three time frame, so the, that, that segment. So that the fact that they made that mistake actually, and they held too long at high rates, actually partially contributed to the, the financial collapse that we had. There was many other things that was not one thing. But so I don't think they'll make that mistake again. So why do I say this? Let's go back to our commercial real estate analogy we talked about. Yeah. If we go back to the commercial real estate analogy we were talking about, let's come back to the situation where all this money has been printed, people buying, let's just say commercial real estate, are more liquid than ever, and now are, a, and, and oh, by the way, debt is still really, really cheap, like 3%. Well, I'm just going to buy whatever the heck I can get my hands on because I've got, you know, and, and whether it makes sense or not, because I know it's going to grow at this point. And so- the only way they can fix that is they say, okay, well, guess what? Your 3% debt is now 6% debt. And that's what they did. They aggressively hiked rates to, and this is not just real estate. This is to, pr to prevent anyone who's buying businesses, real estate, whatever you can buy with leverage, right? To slow the hell down and, and try to regulate prices because that, that all has a trickle effect and, and goes to consumer price goods and all that sort of stuff, right? But in, in effect, whether it's a small business loan for someone producing goods, Money got more expensive, okay? And that creates some kind of economic heartburn, especially the further you go, because all of a sudden people who need that money for operation of their business or to provide goods or services can't get it or they can't afford it, right? So things start to contract, the belts start to tighten, people might lay off workers because, hey, I can't afford that payroll that I was, that I was buying online or credit or whatever it is, right? Credit makes the world go around. And so why am I saying this? Take it all back to where I think we're going in the future. We are on the clock as of January 2022. That was when the first rate hike came out. Okay. We are now in October. We're 10 months in. If we play the law of averages, we should be probably the end of 2023 at the latest by the time we see the first rate cut. Now, I'm a betting man. I like to assert my opinion because I love being wrong. So I'm going to do that. You know, I think based on where the CPI that the Fed is publishing and trusting is that we're probably going to see one or two more rate hikes. I don't think they will be 75 bips. It may drop to 50 and then it may drop to 25 and then they'll quit. But what may happen is we see a drastic reduction in productivity and GDP. And they, and what do they have to do now to stimulate the economy? They, they, they raise rates to slow it down 
They will then have to turn the corner and start cutting rates, probably in a V shape, as in about face and go down to start stimulating productivity and growth again. Now, and this is my last point, and then I'll turn it back over to you, but I, I am, I'm under no illusion that we're going to get to go back to Disneyland where interest rates were the happiest place on earth and we got spoiled, right? But we're probably not going to stay at the point that we are. We're probably going to level out somewhere sub 6%. Pro- if I have my, my aggressive projections are like 4.5%, my pessimistic projections are like 5.5%. All still good rates for commercial real estate or any real estate, you know. So uh, anyway, I'm going to step off my soapbox, but that, that's kind of where I think we're going. Where do you think we're going? I couldn't agree more, Chad. You know, I, I really think history shows us, again, there's that history word, that the Fed does act too late in both rate hiking and rate cutting scenarios. So, you know, and I'll go one step deeper, you know, having a a central authority kind of plan, such an important part of the economy. And, you know, we just know again from history that they tend to not always get it right. So I do think we're probably going to be in for a little bit of economic pain. I'm not scared of that because it doesn't happen equally throughout the United States, right? So we're very smart as investors in terms of where we invest. But I do think it is going to prompt the Fed to have to cut rates. I think in 2023, if I were a betting woman, I'd guess Q3 myself, maybe even Q2, because I think there's going to be pressure not only from American citizens to get the economy going, but I think a lot of us understand that what we do in the U.S. is, you know, can impact others. I mean, there can be strikingly awful economic things that can happen because we are the world's reserve currency and we are the world's reserve superpower. And Europe, I mean, keep a very close eye on Europe. They're they're going to have some economic pain soon. And as are some of our closest allies, I think there may be some negotiations there just in terms of bringing back easy money. So one last thing, the euro is now at parity with the United States dollar. And if you saw the pound just a week ago, went to 1.03, something I don't think, Chad, you and I have ever seen in our lifetime. So no. we've got some interesting things coming without a doubt. We do. And, and that, that point is very important that remember, we are all connected globally, economically, whether we're countries or one world government or whatever you look at it as, we're all connected, you know, because of international trade and things like that. And so every decision we make here, just even just because other countries, you know, own or ha- will have debt to other countries, I mean, it, it affects yeah. everything. And so that's exactly what you're saying. Let, let's let's hyper focus for just a moment because we're getting back to what we do, and that is you know buying you know, value add multifamily, and we know that it's been something that's been going for a long time, but we're still doing it. You know what? What are your thoughts on why in this environment, you know, our company is pursuing you know more like Class B to low end Class A transitions instead of you know we all used to do low end Class C to Class B transitions, which was a very different income group. So what, what are your thoughts on that? statistic and plan, you know, as we go forward. Yeah, I love that, Chad. I think it's such a smart point because, you know, we're, I'd like to bring up two separate topics. The first one is, you know, we're seeing in real time organizations like RealPage are tracking how much rent increases are tolerated by these various asset classes. And without a doubt, class A and class B folks are really absorbing rent increases a lot better. And, you know, that gives us a little bit more runway if God forbid, you know, things slow down they are probably going to be able to continue to absorb maybe not as large rent increases, but we can kind of infer that that will keep us and our investors safe as we continue to execute our business plans. And, you know, as I mentioned earlier, we think about Class C folks, 
they tend to be the ones that are disproportionately impacted by this currency creation or higher inflation. So I think both of those things really prove out that we should really be focusing on folks that, I don't know if I want to say renters by choice, but definitely folks that make a little bit higher income and I think can weather a recession or a high inflationary environment a little bit better. I love that. And, and I'm, you know, I'm even going to pull away from talking about class A, class B, class C. Folks, you need to be focused on the rent to income ratio of any project you're investing in, buying, whatever, because unfortunately, the, the classes of, of renters have kind of become disproportionately affected by the real estate trend that we've had. So if you look at most class C renters in the area, and that's going to be buildings that are like 1960 to 1970, usually moderate crime to high crime usually renters for life and you know some sort of a of a labor or service worker that guess who's the first one to get cut when a recession comes right unfortunately they have been enduring these these renovations and rehabs for quite a bit of time now and so if you look at that rent to income ratio folks you might be seeing they're already at 35 to 40% we don't write leases in our business unless it's 33% or less you know and so how are you going to justify a business plan that, yeah, you can go raise rents, but you're, your delinquency is going to go through the roof because they can't pay it anyway, especially if their grocery bill just doubled, their gas bill just doubled, and they're already living paycheck to paycheck. That's a really, really tough industry to try to to work a value add plan on. Whereas you look at someone who is in the, you know, maybe they're a, a upper end blue collar or white collar worker or renter by choice. Maybe they they own a business or something and they just rent because they want to. But their you know, rent-to-income ratios on the projects that we've been doing are like 15%. So you have a long way to go before you really start to struggle with affordability. So anyway, my two cents, that, that is the number one metric, I think. Well, not it, it's one of many, but that is a very important metric that we are going to continue to watch as we stress you know, doing play, plans, doing value-add plays where affordability doesn't become the problem, you know? I love that, Chad. And I think you and I have even kicked around the idea of, you know, how could we support some lower income or fixed income people within our units? And I think that plan could become more easily to fruition if we do have kind of folks that have a little bit more buffer for increased rent. So I don't know if you want to go down that road, but I just thought I'd drop that in there because I, I do think that that's a really exciting thing that we can do. And I think being strategic about the class of asset that we choose to invest in could help us achieve that goal. No, I think that's very important. And and what she's talking about, you know, Quattro Capital has a very, you know, one of our four pillars is philanthropy. And, and we take that very seriously. You know, first it's people, then the property, then the profits, then the philanthropy, right? So we have to do all things in that order. And that's how we really make a lot of our decisions. Well, it's, it's come to our attention on some of our assets that are doing very well, especially that, well, sometimes we come across a renter who may have been there for 20 years, or maybe they're on a fixed income, or maybe they're just not poised to be able to handle this. And, and unless we can place them in another, you know, equivalent unit or complex that, that maybe a sister community, we're trying to figure out how do we bake into our plans the ability to say, okay, maybe 5% of the residents are, we're just going to keep them at low rent, you know? And I would argue that if you can't make a plan work with that, you shouldn't be buying that project, you know? So anyway, there, there's, you know, it's not always about just making money. It is about creating communities and taking care of the people and, Yes, we're operating a business. Yes, we have to we have to offset increasing costs. And yes, we do feel that especially when we spend money on a unit, we should we should ask market rent. But there are always going to be folks who just they just have extenuating circumstances where they can't do that, you know. And so we want to be in a position to 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 help and give back in that world as well. So thanks for that plug. I appreciate it. Yeah. 
Well, Amy, thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. You know, if the listeners would like to reach out to you personally, what's the best way to do that? Yes. So silviscapital.com is my website. And I'm also extremely active on LinkedIn with a heart to add value to folks that follow me there. So hopefully Chad can put both of those links in the show notes and yeah, would love to keep in touch. To say extremely active is an understatement. She's always on the damn thing. So yes, if you look for Amy Silvis on LinkedIn, you will find her. She's there and a, and a very accomplished author and what, what webcaster or whatever on there. So plenty, plenty you can learn from Amy. All right, everybody. So don't forget, if you got any value out of the show, please, please, please scroll down, leave us a five-star review and a thoughtful comment. Those are the most valuable things you can do for this show to help us reach others. You can also follow us via our parent company, Quattro Capital, on Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, by searching Team Quattro Capital, one word, no special characters, or by simply visiting us at thequattroway.com. Until next time, this has been another episode of the Real Estate Runway Podcast, over and out. We hope this episode was insightful and brought value to your day. If so, please be awesome and leave us a five-star review. Find out how Team Quattro can help you at thequattroway.com. Until next time, this is the Real Estate Runway Podcast.